0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. We often think doctors have all the answers, but several years ago, Dr. Randolph Nessie started asking some hard questions. He's a psychiatrist and a professor at Arizona State University, and for many years before that he was a professor at the University of Michigan. And one day, a patient came to see him and told him, in no uncertain terms...
1: Well, I think I drove for five hours and I'm ready for some real answers. And I said, well, why? What, what's the problem? The
0: problem seemed simple enough, but it changed Nessie's life. He refers to this patient as Miss A, and to put it mildly, she wasn't impressed. Miss A was plagued by rising concerns. She worried constantly about her kids, about her own well-being, about the world, just everything. And this worry, of course, was impacting her life. Her minister had said she should pray, and then when she turned to a series of professionals, they all had different answers. Take pills, one said. Do regular therapy, said another. Look to a hidden part of your past, said a third. For Nessie, Miss A's skepticism about how or whether the medical establishment could help her raised an even more fundamental question. Why wasn't Miss A, and all of us actually, happier?
1: You kind of look out the window and you imagine the millions of people who aren't getting help and the fact that we're never going to have enough therapists and psychiatrists to help everybody who needs help. You really have to ask this question about, you know, why on earth is the brain designed in a way to leave us all so vulnerable to so many problems?
0: It may seem like a weird thing to ask, but if you see people every day who are worried, depressed, anxious, dealing with eating disorders, self-doubt, you might start to wonder, what's going on? Why do people struggle with these sorts of emotions, both those who seek help and, frankly, just about everybody else at one time or another? Why are there so many busy therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, writers of self-help books? Nessie says experts have been looking at the problem the way a mechanic would, which is to say, let's find and fix what's broken. But he argues for a different approach, one that turns on its head the way we think about why we're not always so happy something called evolutionary medicine, which acknowledges that feeling not so great appears to be how we're engineered, and it's a pretty brilliant part of us.
1: Every organism, not just humans, needs to allocate its effort with more energy and enthusiasm and initiative sometimes when times are good and less when times are bad. I mean, there are times when the more energy you put out there, the worse it is. I think about my ancestors on a small island in the the North Sea for the last thousand years. There probably were some perky ones who were very optimistic in February and went out looking for food, and a lot of them never came back. And so those of us who tend towards a bit more pessimism you know, are still here with our genes to pass on.
0: Nessie is the author of the book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry, in which he says that we've too rarely asked why we have the vulnerabilities that we do, why so many of us struggle at one time or another, and whether what looks like a vulnerability is, in fact, A sign that evolution has done its job.
1: In general, there are good reasons for bad feelings. It's not automatically a a sign of a personal defect to experience anxiety or depression or too much anger or too much jealousy or too much of other emotions.
0: Now, that's not to say that anger doesn't sometimes pop out at a moment that's inappropriate and detrimental. But these sorts of emotions also have major evolutionary upsides, which is why we have them in our toolbox in the first place. And that nagging question, why aren't I happier, it ignores the fact that evolution didn't gear us to be happy. Nessie argues the narrative we've come to believe often overlooks that reality.
1: The answer we're all taught in school is that there are mutations that happen and therefore minds and bodies aren't perfect. And that's certainly true and important. But it turns out there are a bunch of other reasons why bodies and minds are vulnerable. I mean, one of them is that we live in a modern environment that's really different from the environment we evolved in. That's that's kind of an obvious one. But another one is that bodies and minds are not shaped for health or happiness or even longevity. Mm-hmm. They're shaped to do whatever is best for our genes and having the maximum number of offspring. It's a really disturbing idea. And then there's the fact that a lot of the things that bother us the most aren't exactly diseases; they're symptoms. And one of the main points of my book is that you know, a lot of things like anxiety and low mood and, and jealousy and, and all the rest, you know, these aren't diseases unless they're really extreme, unless the regulation mechanism is not working at all. They're symptoms, just like pain and cough and fever and nausea and vomiting and all the rest. These are all mechanisms shaped by natural selection because they're useful, but only if they go off. In the right circumstance.
0: So talk a little bit about why some of these things like, you know, anxiety, uh, depression—I I mean, as you say, like in a very—in uh, an extreme case, they are wouldn't, wouldn't be useful, even maybe in an evolutionary way. But why in a non-extreme way would they be useful? Why did our bodies evolve these things?
1: You know, I spent most of my clinical career helping people with anxiety disorders. At the University of Michigan, we started one of the world's first anxiety disorders clinics, and I saw hundreds of people who had panic attacks out of the blue, and it just seemed so obvious that these are completely abnormal. People suddenly get their heart pounding, and they sweat, and they feel like they have to get the heck out of there, Mm -hmm. and like they might die. It's just a terrible sudden feeling for no reason. And then after seeing people for about 15 years, I started thinking about, so why does this response exist at all? And it was instantly clear that that's the fight-flight response, that's the emergency response. If, in fact, there's a lion breathing down your neck, all those things are actually useful. And, you know, just like our smoke detectors in our houses, we put up with false alarms in those because, hey, what's a few false alarms from burnt toast to save your life if there's a fire? It's the same thing with panic attacks. I mean, natural selection has shaped that mechanism to make sure that those panic attacks go off every time there might be a lion, any place within miles around. And so this means that it's perfectly normal to have some false alarms in the panic attack system. Hmm. And it helped my patients enormously also, both to recognize that false alarms are normal and to recognize that their symptoms weren't just something about their brain being defective, but there were advantages as well as disadvantages to these symptoms.
0: And and you talked before about sort of modern life, really taking a whole sort of skill set that we have or a whole bunch of tools, mental tools that we have, and well, I mean, we're, we have different things to work on with our tools now. We have the same tools, but we have a completely different th- set of things and problems to deal with. Talk about that mismatch as far as you can tell.
1: You know, a lot of people imagine that our modern life is causing most of our anxiety and low mood. You know, Maybe some, but the evidence for that is not that great. Mm-hmm. Where it's really powerful evidence, though, is all the troubles we have with eating and with drugs. I mean, there wasn't such a thing as having pure drugs and needles and cigarette papers way back when. You know, People might occasionally get a little bit of a drug, but nothing like the steady supplies that we have now. Hmm. Eating is just a different version. It's so wonderful that we have such great food now, isn't it? I mean, just fabulous. But The whole mechanism is set so that it ensures that we don't starve, that being the problem before. And the mechanisms to prevent us from eating too much are not as powerful. Then there's eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia. I mean, so many people are heavy these days and they try to say, okay, I'm just going to use my willpower and I'm going to control my eating and just stop this eating for a few days. And sure enough, after a day or maybe two days, the famine protection mechanism kicks in. And all of a sudden they're looking at a half gallon of ice cream and wondering what happened to it and feeling nauseated. And, you know, of course, what that does is make you feel like, oh, my God, I really am out of control. I've got to try harder. And that sets off a positive feedback process. And worse yet, the whole system is designed so that when food supplies are erratic, it ratchets up the baseline body weight. So attempts at severe dieting end up backfiring for many people. This is a classic example of modern environments creating problems that people didn't used to have.
0: When, when somebody walks into your office, let's say, um, who has, uh, for example, depression, when, when you think about that from an evolutionary perspective, like what is the science behind why people, clearly not just that person, but many, many people um, have to deal with depression, what is your answer to that?
1: So the first principle is there isn't just one reason why people get depressed. And I I try to distinguish very carefully between what I call low mood and depression. Low mood is the feeling we all get sometimes where we get discouraged and we're just not optimistic and we don't want to take any risks. We kind of want to just go home and stay under the covers for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, there are people who have depression so bad that they think they're impoverished. They think they're going to die and they're ready to kill themselves and they don't eat and they don't sleep. You know, this is a, a very different thing. Is that just a very extreme condition? It's really hard to tell. But again, going back to the work of about a dozen psychologists over the past 15 years, it's pretty clear that there's one kind of situation that sets off low mood escalating into depression, and that is pursuing an unreachable goal. Because a lot of the utility of low mood is to get us to quit doing things that aren't working. And unfortunately, the way life is for all of us, we all try to do a bunch of things that end up not working out. And trying to figure out when it's the right time to give up on something is such a profound question. It turns out not to be just for humans, but almost every organism has to figure out, do I keep doing this or do I give up and try to do something else? So when I talk with patients about their lives, I try to figure out, is there something this person's trying to do that they just can't give up, even though they're pretty sure they're never going to succeed at it? And and if there is, how come they can't give up or find some different direction or, or different strategy? So this allows, I think, you know, talking with people about what's going on in their lives in a more focused way that's related to their moods.
0: So now give me a sense of how modern times factors into this, because it seems on the surface like it might be... This might be a time in which people set higher goals or more unattainable goals. I want to be a billionaire. I want to be a movie star. You know, things that like are very, very, very hard to ever realize, you know, in in your life, Um, whereas, you know... uh, thousands of years ago, that those would not have been goals. I mean, the goals might have been, I would guess, smaller, like, let's get some food today. Um, Exactly. You know, do you think part of that is like the mismatch between, you know, wanting set goal setting, which is good, and a sort of modern world in which we can see all sorts of things that in many ways are really, really so far away from where we're ever going to be?
1: I think what you're saying makes perfect sense, and it almost seems automatically that it must be true, Uh, because we have modern media, and and nowadays anybody can start their own podcast or YouTube channel or Instagram thing, and some of them are going to get super famous and rich from it, so why don't we all try? Are, Are the rest of us failures? Because we're not doing that. On the other hand, the evidence isn't all that strong. People keep imagining that there's way more depression now than there was 10 years ago or 50 years ago. Not that great evidence. There is some pretty strong evidence that for young people between the ages of 18 and 24, especially in the United Kingdom, there has been a real increase in anxiety and depression, and it might well be that that has to do with smartphones and modern media and perhaps just not sleeping as much and not having as much time with real friends But I think what your point is so profound, because most of us in the academy and and universities, we're encouraging all of our students to be great. You can get a Fulbright. You can get into medical school. You can get a... But you know what? That's not the right route for everybody. Mm -hmm. And if you even say to people, hey, everybody, why don't we just relax and live and enjoy our friends and and work? That's not what you're supposed to say. You're Mm -hmm. supposed to encourage everybody to strive for greatness. The United States has depression rates are the highest in the world. See, there's so many research questions that are just ripe for asking, and people are beginning to get on these things, but it really takes this evolutionary approach, asking about why mood exists at all, in order to for people to see the question and go after it.
0: Let, let me go a little deeper there. You, you kind of mentioned the statistics, but um, we have seen a surge in... Suicides—they're um, up about uh, over fifty percent um, amongst people ten to nineteen between 2007–2016. We've seen a commensurate, a very, very similar rise in uh, rates of depression. Probably not surprisingly, to you, given what you've seen—you see patients all the time. Um, you've seen this sort of broad, overarching research uh, from the Centers for Disease Control. What is going on?
1: So um, part of my work is in epidemiology, which means that I'm very careful about talking about these things, and I haven't actually reviewed the recent evidence for what might be responsible. But there's some things that are obvious to an epidemiologist that might not occur to other people. A lot of it is access to guns, hmm. and some of it is access to injectable opiates that kill people, sometimes because of plain overdose, or is that overdose a suicide? Some of it may well be due to increased depression, and hopelessness, and the dramatic increase in suicides and health problems for older white men that's been documented in the past uh, few years might, might well be due to changes in job opportunities and the like. But is it mainly due to increases in depression? I'm not at all sure about that. I mean, here's the sad part it turns out that there are many suicides and young women working in the fields in rural China. And partly, that's certainly because their jobs are boring. They may may well be mistreated at times. But the more important thing is that they're carrying around with them buckets of insecticide. And just one drink does it. Hmm. Those common kinds of everyday things turn out to have a big, big influence. This is important for public health. I mean, limiting access to guns and poisons and easy places to jump does an enormous benefit of preventing impulsive suicides from people who might well be so grateful a little bit later of realizing that their whole life really was ahead of them, not behind them.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Randolph Nessie, author of Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. In your research, have you noticed that there are – we've talked about all these um, issues that people experience. Um, Are there big gender differences here?
1: For most, there are not. For you know schizophrenia, there are no big differences. Bipolar disorder, not that much. Eating disorders are overwhelmingly more common for women, but that is probably because of cultural factors that induce dieting and, and the rest. But the two big ones that seem to be cross-culturally specific or, or consistent are for anxiety and depression, and most places women have about twice as much likelihood of getting depressed and anxious as men. And it's not just because they report it more. If you go door to door to a random sample, that, that's what you find. So what's going on there? You know, In particular for anxiety, people have been asking for decades, what's wrong with women? Why do they have so much excess anxiety? But again, an evolutionary view gives you a very different take on that. When you start recognizing anxiety can be useful and that lower levels of anxiety might allow you to compete better, which might be good for your genes but bad for you, then it turns it on its head, and it really suggests that the amount of anxiety experienced by women on average is probably about right, Hmm. and the amount experienced by men is not enough for them to protect themselves, although it's probably the right amount to maximize their genetic transmission.
0: So in in some sense, when you say, like, you know, what's wrong with women, why don't they experience Why do they experience so much anxiety? You're kind of turning around and saying, like, what's What's wrong with men? Well, you're also saying, like, what's right with women? Like, why is so much anxiety, like, a really helpful thing for going about your daily life?
1: That's right. But we should pause for a second. Nobody likes to feel anxious. Yeah. Nobody likes to feel depressed or anything else. So we have all kinds of clinics where people have too much anxiety and too much depression. There are people who don't have enough anxiety. Uh, It's called hypophobia. And here in Arizona, we've had, you know, I think four people fall into the Grand Canyon over the last month. Good examples of people who just did not have enough anxiety. Hmm. And we don't have clinics for such people. And I think there also are people who just never experienced low mood, even when it would be wise for them. Hmm. There's certainly no clinics for them. So it's, it's very understandable that these feelings that feel bad are the ones that people want help with.
0: When you back up and look at all this and you think about, you know, uh, medicine, like just going to the doctor with some ache or pain or whatever it is, um, and you think about the strides that have been made in testing and in, and in uh, dealing with all sorts of things, cancer, heart disease, infections, all sorts of stuff. Do you feel like uh, mental illness still has kind of the big leap in answers yet to go um, or like just give me a sense of where you would position it in terms of like medicine at the hospital that you know people go to for a physical ailment right
1: i think all of us have hoped that we would be able to you know do something like a specific test for strep throat and identify the cause of a disorder and give a specific drug that'll that'll fix it and again i still hope we will be able to do that for some diseases But no luck so far with any of our diseases. No, my big hope for this whole perspective is that it can make psychiatry more like the rest of medicine. Because in the rest of medicine, doctors distinguish symptoms from diseases very carefully. And they don't say you have cough disorder if you cough too much. They say we've got to find the cause of the cough and if we can't find any cause that's bringing it up normally, then we might consider the possibility that the cough regulation mechanism isn't working right. Likewise for fever or pain, pain is the most profound one, I think. I've just wrote a paper about evolution and pain and why we're so prone to chronic pain. It's just a different version about why we're so prone to chronic depression. I think a lot of depression really is the equivalent of chronic pain but mental pain instead of physical pain and, and it serves much of the same purpose to, to get you to stop doing things that are hurting you or, or costly one way or another. So I think that kind of approach can make psychiatry more like the rest of medicine and likewise the rest of medicine understands pathology, why things don't work in terms of how things do work. In psychiatry we've been looking for the cause of schizophrenia and autism. But for instance, for congestive heart failure, you know, when people get swollen ankles and short of breaths because their heart just isn't pumping enough, Mm -hmm. doctors recognize that there can be 10 different reasons why the heart isn't pumping enough. And I think it might well be that we find for some of these mental disorders that it's really failure of some kind of a system, not just something that has one specific cause. Mm
0: Randolph Nessie is the director of the Center for Evolution and Medicine at Arizona State University, and he's the author of Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. Randy, thank you so much for being here.
1: So glad to join you.
0: If you wanna learn more about the evolutionary mismatch between our brains and the modern world, and how that might affect your mood, we're gonna dive deeper into this topic at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.